every conductor just needs to remember that the people are there to play. At, at every level, from beginners to professionals, the bulk of the time has to be playing. Yep. So that again comes back to that nonverbal thing, right, of as a conductor, the better and more explicit and expressive your gestures can be, the more time the ensemble gets to play because you're doing the rehearsing while you're conducting. Hi, I'm Ingrid Martin. And I'm Tom Graydon. And you're listening to Season 2 of the Conducting Artistry Podcast. I'm a conductor based in Melbourne, Australia, and I work with everyone from beginner bands to professional orchestras. I'm a fourth-year trombone student studying at the University of Melbourne. I'm doing an internship with Ingrid, following her around and learning about conducting. This season of the podcast, we're going to be discussing what players need from conductors from before the first rehearsal to after the final performance. I really want to ask you about how you, with groups that you know and groups that you don't know, how you engage with players' musical ideas and musical suggestions. How do you read the room in that way? One of the things that I do all the time when I'm working in like a school or university setting or a music camp or on a band, something like that, is I'm always asking questions Mm. because questions are what forces the ensemble to think for themselves. And ultimately that's what we want. We want the ensemble to be thinking like a conductor. Mm. That's the ideal thing that the ensemble knows their place in the big picture of the whole piece, that they understand the structure of the whole piece, they understand what their role is, they understand how they have to balance to different people, they understand how they have to change and adjust to play in tune with other people. They can be flexible with time and rubato and know how to, you know, flow with tempo and rhythm as a group which are all the things that conductors think about and have to do. So I'm constantly asking questions to try and help the ensemble refine their listening and refine their understanding of the music. So sometimes it will be what is your role in the music or what do you think you should be listening for at this point or who do you need to tune to or who do we need to listen to to make a balanced crescendo through here? Lots of that questioning depends on the ensemble having been taught those concepts before. Yeah. Because if you if you ask the question and they've never been taught it before, well then... They're not going to have an answer for you. <laughs> exactly. That, or the answer is going to be weird. Yeah. So sometimes the questions are used as a diagnostic tool mm-hmm. if I'm coming in to a group I don't know mm-hmm. to see what what their level of understanding of those concepts is. And if they, it's clear that they don't know them, then I'll go and explicitly teach the concept. Yeah. So for that role thing, it might be, okay, well, what different layers can you hear in the music? Okay. Oh, we've got the melody. Okay. Let's hear the people that play the melody and they play it. Okay. What else is going on? Oh, not sure. Okay. Let's hear everyone who did not play that time. Who's not the melody. Go, okay, what do you hear? Oh, there's a bass line. Okay, play if you think you've got the bass line. So that little activity, once you go through all the steps, is giving them that explicit experience of, okay, here are the different jobs. Here are the roles. Mm. So then you can go to a different spot 
in that piece or a different piece and say, okay, what are your roles? Remember before we did it and they were X, Y, Z, are they the same? Are they different? Are there more? Are there less? Are you with the same people? So there's those sort of questions that I guess are about the mechanics of ensemble playing. Yep. But then I think maybe what your question was more about was the player's sort of opinion of how well things are going or how. Or even opinion of how the music should go. And, okay. Yeah. So interpretively, yeah, yes. that's a, that's yeah, a different yeah. question. Yes. And that's a, <laughs> such a good minefield. <laughs> it's something that I've thought so much about for mm. years and sort of swayed like a pendulum between so many different ways that this can be approached. Yep. So when um, I obviously started out working a lot in school and community music and with um, university level students. And so as a, in that teaching role, my job is really to help them become better musicians and better artists. So as much as possible, I was trying to give over a lot of interpretive decision-making to the ensemble because I wanted them to understand that that was critical to being a musician and for them to have the experience of making those kind of decisions. The challenge with that is that you have obviously 50 people in a room <laughs> and 50 different ideas. Yeah. So if I ask, well, what do you think is the, the character of the music at letter Z, there might be 50 different versions, but usually they'll be somewhere in a postcode of being the same. Yeah. Okay. They'll be in the same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And then we can say, well, whatever of those words worked for you, put that on the page. Because the reality is for the listener, if you got 50 people to listen to that passage, they'd also say 50 different versions of yes. what they think the feeling is. Yeah. So it's not so much about having one specific, say when we're talking about character, one specific word or emotion or feeling, but everyone having something that's in the ballpark that resonates for them. Yeah. Because that's how we'll get it to the audience. Yep. yep. The challenge comes when you're talking about really specific things like, say, phrasing. Yeah. Like, okay, well, where do you think the peak of this phrase is? And one person might say, oh, well, I think it's on the fourth beat. Okay, let's try that. Let's go. Let's phrase to the fourth beat and then phrase off. Yeah. And then someone else might say, no, I think it's on the second beat. And so then I would say, oh, right, let's try it together and do it on the second beat. We do that. And however many suggestions and obviously you're limited by time. Yeah. But often when I'm working in those groups, what comes next is the challenge. Mm -hmm. So then do you go with the majority? Yep. Even if that's what you as a conductor think is not right. Yeah. <laughs> or do you then help them understand why you think it should go to the third beat? Yeah. Yep. For example. And I've done both. Yeah. In different contexts. I think now I would probably lean more towards the second of 
give, showing them all the different options and then helping them understand why I think why you've chosen this option. this this option, but also that there's arguments for the other options. Mm. Yep. I would only really <clears throat> dismiss something if it seemed extremely unmusical. And again, what an what an abstract kind of concept. Yeah. <laughs> what is musical and what is not? But if there was something that came up that seemed really off, yeah. Then I might try and explain why that feels off. Mm. But also for me, that process has really helped me keep an open mind musically yep. because inevitably you get all these different ideas that you never would have thought of yourself, which is cool. Yeah. How does that go with, how do you do that with professional orchestras where every player has a very clear idea of how the music goes and it may be in very strong opposition to what how you think it goes? How do you... Do you talk about it or do you just show or? So if you'd asked me this at the start of the year, I would probably have had a completely different answer. Okay. Even a couple of months ago. Yep. What was, would, would have been your old answer? My old answer would have been something about having my own opinion, but being quite flexible about taking on other people's ideas. And also I just wouldn't have been sure of how to address that in a professional context because I hadn't had enough experience. Yes. Now, as I've got a bit more, what I understand today, which might change in four weeks, whatever, <laughs> is that you have to be so firm in your opinion of every note. Yeah. Of exactly how you think it should go. And why? And the most important thing is that you are convinced of your interpretation. Yeah. There can't be hesitancy or uh, apologeticness mm -hmm. about making that musical decision or fear of stepping on the toes of those other people's opinion. Yeah. Like when you're in that position, you're the leader and it has to be your way. And they don't really mind if your version is different to theirs because that's their job. Yeah. They come to work every week and they play Beethoven 5 500 times in their yeah. career and every conductor is going to have a different version. Yep. And their job is to flex to that version. And that's what, what being a professional orchestral musician is. However, I think there does have to be room for bringing in all of that musical expertise mm. that is there in the orchestra. And it could be a band. We're just using orchestra as an example. And so, again, it comes back to what we talked about earlier in terms of listening. So if you hear something that you go, oh, that's, that's a different way of phrasing that thing than I thought would have been before, yeah. and you think it's better, great. Honour that person's contribution. But you also have to be careful that you don't flip-flop around. Yeah. Because yep. in that professional context, you have so little time. What they want from you is consistency and predictability so that they know they can feel 
both safe and secure in the performance, but also inspired. Yep. So there has to be a little bit of room for spontaneity and giving that sort of extra level of oomph and emotional commitment in the performance. But you don't want people to be freaking out about, oh, well, we did it this way and then we did it a second way and then we did it a third way and then we did it the first way again and then we did it the second way but slower. What way is she going to do it in the concert? Yeah, which is... That's not good. Frustrating and also really terrifying. (laughs) Correct. And that's, as a conductor, you don't want people to be terrified. That's not helpful for people to do their best work. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So it's about, again, absorbing all of the music that's coming to you when you're listening during the rehearsals and trying to somehow incorporate that into your interpretation. And I think that idea we actually used with the like beginner band or young band earlier is really applicable that I can think that this note is really anguished and have a certain sound in mind. But even within that idea, there's a spectrum of different ways that could be done. And so, you know, my job is to listen to what the ensemble is playing back and thinking about, does that fit within that spectrum or has it fallen outside that spectrum? And then that's something that I want to comment on and sort of bring our two ideas of the music closer together. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting though, because something the conductor of my orchestra does, Richard Davis, is in concerts, sometimes something different happens. Like he just does something a little bit faster or a little bit slower or a little bit lighter. And it's amazing. And we like, it's one of the things we really love because like, oh, that was so cool. And and like, and it's really clear and we know what's going on. And it just adds this little bit of sort of spice to performances when something like extra cool happens. How does that work? (laughs) I don't know about Richard, but for me, that's something that's a very deliberate choice Mm. of leaving something extra for the performance that the ensemble hasn't seen before. And some of that might have been pre-planned, you know, I'm going to do that bit a bit louder or a bit bigger or whatever. But a lot of it is spontaneous. Yeah. It's more that concept of I'm going to leave something in the tank. Yeah, yeah. For that extra sort of injection of inspiration and energy and excitement. Yeah. But I think it's finding that line between it being exciting and it being terrifying. Like, oh my goodness, what's going on? I haven't seen this before. <laughs> exactly. So you don't want to go so far away from your thing that is terrifying and yeah. uh, and it puts people off. Mm. But it's, it's more like I think of it as an amplification of what's happening that maybe in the rehearsals I'm at six out of ten or seven out of 10, and maybe that dial kind of creeps further up as you're getting closer to the concert, particularly if you're doing a run-through or a general rehearsal or something. Yeah. But then you you want to leave that number 10 until the show. Yeah. Yep. What, why would you not use number 10 earlier in the rehearsal process? I think... Because you don't want things to feel stale. Mm. And obviously, I guess particularly in this professional context and 
maybe a bit so in a university context, but it is professionals are geared towards the performance. The performance is the main outcome. That is the goal. And yeah. that's the thing that you want to be the best version of everything. Mm-hmm. And so you have to leave that little bit extra so that you can pull that out in the performance. Yes. Yep. In an educational context, there might be reasons for doing some of that earlier. Yep. Not, I wouldn't be at number 10 for a whole piece, I don't think. But you also, in those contexts, when the players are less experienced, they need a different kind of security yeah, and confidence. Yeah, so giving them a little bit of a taste of what can happen yes. is useful. Exactly. If you're enjoying the insights from this season's podcast, then you'll love my book, Planning Effective Rehearsals, Tools to Boost Learning and Engagement. In it, I give you plenty of practical strategies for ensuring that your ensemble can move from stress to success, including heaps of downloadable templates so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel and you can get planning straight away. To check it out, visit conductingartistry.com forward slash books. So Tom, thinking about that, that middle period where we're sort of doing the hard work of rehearsals, what does a an unsuccessful or an unsatisfying rehearsal look or feel like to you as a player? Yeah, I think what you were saying before about changing ideas a lot is a big one. Like that can be really, really frustrating when, especially when it's it's with someone else and you're not playing. It's like they played that like three times and it was different every time and then we just moved on or like, yeah, that can be really frustrating. Um, I think also too much detail is not super effective. (laughs) I think often a lot of the, like, as you say, just a chance to play it again and keep moving through is really helpful. So when you stay on the same eight bars for even just a little bit too long, it could really drag down sort of the general quality of the rehearsal. Um, Yeah, I think also too much talking, sort of a bit of talking is really, really good, I find. Um, I think especially because it adds a little bit of a personal element that you can't get just from gestures. Um, But, yeah, when there's, uh, you know, you're there to play. (laughs) I think... uh Every conductor listening is probably nodding their head and going, yep, I've been a culprit of too much talking. <laughs> I think that's one of the one of the most challenging things about the job. It's mm. like we have so much to say and a lot of it we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, like you said, I think every conductor just needs to remember that the people are there to play. At, at every level, from beginners to professionals, the bulk of the time has to be playing. Yep. So that again comes back to that nonverbal thing, right, of as a conductor, the better and more explicit and expressive your gestures can be, the more time the ensemble gets to play because mm. you're doing the rehearsing while you're conducting through that sort of feedback loop that we were talking about earlier. 
Can you share some things about pacing that either you feel make the rehearsal go really well or that drag it down? Like you mentioned that spending too long on a passage. Yeah. I'm actually, I think I need to get out of an orchestral headspace for these sorts of, for this conversation, because I think the low brass perspective is not very universal of just not playing very much, <laughs> but in a, yeah, like a, I suppose a wind symphony. Um, I think the, it's obviously not a good idea to go too fast. Um, and it's obviously not a good idea to go too slow. But I think there is actually a lot of, a lot of, there's a really helpful envelope in there of possible rehearsal speeds. Um, I think it can be really, really useful to just go over that bit one more time. And it can also be really, really useful to go, right, actually, that's fine. Let's, let's move on. So I'm not sure if I have a, a definite answer of a rehearsal pace that I like, but I think the thing that I find the most valuable is when a conductor knows, knows what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking and the things that I'm struggling with and notices, oh, I think, yeah, I think we actually just need to do that one bit one more time because like they didn't, they felt a little bit rocky and they look a little bit uncertain or alternatively, they all going, you know, rolling their eyes and going like, oh gosh, that was pretty bad. Like they know it was bad. We don't need to go. Like I think just an awareness of what I'm thinking and feeling informing the pace is the thing that I find the most, the most useful and encouraging. Yeah. I think you've really hit the nail on the head there that it's about us as conductors being aware. Again, it's that reading the room mm. of yes, this needs more repetitions in order for it to be bedded down. And that's part of the conductor knowing where they are in their big plan of sort of all of the rehearsals and like, am I going to come back to this bit in two weeks or is this the last time that I'm planning on doing this bit before the concert? And so, oh, okay, I do actually need to do more reps mm. or is it I can see and hear it's not going to get any better today. Yeah. Because <laughs> that flogging a dead horse thing <laughs> is so frustrating, both as a conductor, but especially as a player. Yeah. Because there's a point, you get to that tipping point and, and sometimes it starts getting worse yeah. <laughs> instead of better. And that's such a judgment call for the conductor. And that's something that really comes with experience, I think, of working out what do I keep going on what do I let go? What do I know will come just in two weeks' time from having two more weeks with the music? Yeah. And that skill is just constantly yeah. developing in different contexts. Which is, they're all things that we work on and use in our individual instrumental practice. These ideas of when is it useful to keep pushing? When is it useful to leave this till tomorrow? And so I suppose the conductor's job is to lead a group practice session and be aware of everybody's like practice needs <laughs> and where they're up to in their, I don't know, learning cycles of their practice session to, 
and combine everybody's individual practice sessions into one big practice session with lots of people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the challenge is that it's a group thing and that within that group, everyone has different needs. And there might be one player in that passage that you can hear really needs to do it again and everyone else is done and they were done like two goes ago. (laughs) And again, that's, that's what you have to decide as a conductor. Am I going to do it again for that one person? Yep. And how critical is it that that one person feels confident? Because maybe mm. it is. Yeah. Maybe that person is a soloist in that passage or you just know if they're, if they're not secure on that, that's going to cause problems later in the piece or mm-hmm. whatever it is, or even in another piece later that day because of what that does to that person's psychology. Yeah. Of they kind of get down on themselves and then they're in a bad headspace. Yeah. So a lot of it is just that perceiving the psychology of mm. what's going on and it changes from rehearsal to rehearsal and piece to piece, even with the same group of people. Yep. And obviously when you're with people that you don't know as well, you just have to, you're relying on those observational yeah. skills. Yep. And again, it comes back to that listening and the better that you know the music, the more you can put your attention on listening and reading the people in the room. When we spend most of our time in our own rehearsal rooms and offices, it can be really hard to get any feedback, advice or ideas on how to improve or problem solve our own conducting. Conducting Bootcamp helps you to learn how to critique your own conducting. You'll find out what to look for, common mistakes and what clear conducting looks like. You'll be able to watch yourself and have the tools to constantly improve and grow from one rehearsal to the next. To find out more, visit conductingartistry.com forward slash learn. So, Tom, what are you going to take away from what we've talked about in terms of this middle period of rehearsing? I think reading the room, just having a really a really clear, clear understanding of how people work and how people act when they're feeling certain things um, so that you can cast your eyes around the room and figure out what's going on and what players need. And how do you think that might apply to you as a player as well? That's an interesting question. I think for me as a player, being able to think more about what the conductor is thinking and feeling would be really useful because then that can give me a clearer idea of what they need from me. Um, And I think also reading the room outside of my immediate section and the people sitting around me sort of going, oh, I wonder what the flutes are thinking, (laughs) Um, which isn't something I think about too much. It's often just like, oh, no, you know, they sound good or they need to work on this or whatever. But thinking about what they as people need could be really interesting and useful. Yeah, and I think that will be taking you on that journey as a player of even when you're sitting in that that one trombone chair of thinking what is going on in the bigger picture and being empathetic towards Mm. everyone in the room Yes, in that thinking like a conductor way. If you've learned something valuable from today's conversation, 
then spread the word. Share today's episode with a colleague. Send them a text message, share it over email, or share it in a Facebook group so that lots of people can learn because what we all want is better rehearsals. For more great conducting and rehearsing related content, check out my website, conductingartistry.com, where you'll find on-demand video courses, a blog with plenty of free resources, show notes for this episode and all of our other podcast episodes. And you can also sign up to the mailing list to get quality information like this delivered straight to your inbox. 